0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Ahmad Fuad Rahmat and welcome to Night School, the show that explores the key themes in history, the social sciences and the humanities. Together with Sharat Kutun, we critically unpack theories, frameworks and social phenomena, the better to understand how society works. Each week, we discuss a classic text theme or an idea that we hope to shed light on the world around you. We are joined this week by Professor Mazna Muhammad all the way from the Department of Malay Studies and Southeast Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore to talk to us about the margins of Malay development, who's left out of the new economic policy, particularly focusing on some of the fieldwork she's done. Welcome to the show, Professor.
1: Thank you. Thank
0: you. So uh, I trust that you have uh, known each other for some time, yeah, Sherrod. I mean, I, based yeah, on of the because 'cause from I've a never called reporting? her
1: professor. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs>
2: yeah. I think the informality that you associate with intellectual and academic life I mean there's one level which is quite informal, right? And I think mm-hmm. with people at USM in particular who contributed to aliran and created kind of public discourse. It was much more kind of direct engagement rather than perhaps the more professorial type fora where everybody is very polite. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and that's the interesting thing I like about your critique of the new economic policy in that it is informed by a certain activist perspective. You're talking about marginalization uh, in terms of gender, in terms of class. So perhaps we can start with that. To what extent do you see teaching itself as a form of activism, how do you locate your identity as an academic to be in line with the activism work that you've also done?
1: Well, yeah, while well, Sharat was talking about my involvement in Aliran, that was when I was still at uh, USM in Penang. But of course, now I'm, I'm at NUS, so <laughs> most of the work has to be kind of a uh, couch, you know, within a, an academic kind of framework. But of course, by doing so does not mean that you kind of shirk your responsibility right, towards certain um, social phenomenon. So the research that I did in Kelantan was really to unearth you see, what is meant by poverty in the rural area. What was interesting about this research was that when I went to Jali, which was quite remote, although it's connected now because of the east-west highways and it's only about one and a half hours drive from Kota it was a kind of a microcosm of social life, which wasn't actually rural, hmm. as most people would imagine. It was a place at the margins, but it had all the indication and of, you know, social conditions that mirror urban life. So what I mean here is that there was unemployment, even though there was vast you know, tract of agricultural land. Nobody was farming, actually, at that time. There were young people, underemployed, and quite a few of them were addicted to drugs because Jeli is situated right at the border, so they could cross to the Thai side Mm. very easily. So there's a kind of an underground kind of economy there. And then there were young women, well, they were not young anymore, Uh, women who had returned from their employment in Penang and Kedah, when they were working in the factories when the electronics factories were booming at that time in the 70s and 80s but after the factories got relocated they had to return back and then they were neither urban nor rural kind of situation there were people who had worked in KL but found that it was really impossible Mm -hmm. to eke out the living Uh, well I mean the cost of living is really high here right so they returned to Klantan because at least they had a house, a home and no rent to pay, but there were no jobs. Mm -hmm. And there were women whose only job were to clear old uh, rubber plantation, old oil palm plantations clearing because, you know, every few years you have to replant. And that was the only job they had.
0: Yeah. Um, Now, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned this as a microcosm, right? Which means that this is one instance out of many. Uh, of similar sorts of uh, marginalisation. Now, what made you choose Jelly of all the possible locations out there? Yeah,
1: that's that's an interesting question because we went there because we had some contact. Oddly enough, it was the World Wildlife Fund. At that time, they were there because they were monitoring the wildlife in that area because people were actually opening up land because oil palm was quite high, uh, the price. So they were actually clearing a lot of the forest, primary forest. And there were tigers and some wildlife there. And so they were deprived see, of their space. And they were actually coming into the villages. Mm-hmm. And so WWF was really just interested in tracking, you see, the wildlife. Well, of course, it had to do with poverty. And so we had two research assistants there who were actually university graduates who were actually locals. And so we thought that, you know, they could also help us with our research. At the same time, you see, we have well, basically they had a, a four-wheel drive you know, because that was a, quite a big uh, fun, you see, by WWF at that time. So yeah. that was how I got into this place. Yeah.
0: So just to further contextualize yeah. this research, it was done sometime in the mid two thousands. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I find that a very interesting time because the heyday of the nineties, the golden era where we produced this middle class is sort of past. We have a better perspective of like mm-hmm. by that time, two generations of Malays who have experienced the NEP, right? right. right. Yeah.
2: I wonder, since Mm -hmm. this discussion is really framed by the question of the NEP, that you know, is a focus on the marginal is it unusual, or is would it be part of the cost? If you're looking at something like development projects or a a policy, especially over time, wouldn't you want to look at all layers which are affected, both the upper echelons in terms of ownership, maybe structures, or in the case of Malaysia, the growing middle class, as well as where it's sort of not working. And, you know, if it's not working, it doesn't mean the policy as a whole is not necessarily working, is it? I mean, you could have a system working, but it just somehow that people who fall through the cracks.
1: Yeah, I'm glad that you asked that question because most people have forgotten that the NEP has two prongs, actually. Only one had to do with the redistribution of income, right? Because of uh, ethnicity, uh, inequality based on socioeconomic differences. But the other prong is actually poverty eradication, And, you know, somehow or other, the highlight has always been on the first prong, which was to restructure society on the basis of race. So I took upon myself to actually investigate the second prong because a lot of economists built this macro picture that poverty had been drastically reduced due to the NEP. But they were actually using very macro data, like, you know, all our average income had gone up. Actually, you could see those sort of data happening in other countries which didn't have NEP. It just happened to be a function, right, of development. I mean, if you look mm-hmm. at Thailand, if you look at Indonesia, you would actually see a rising proportion of middle class in that society. So I thought that, so that, that was a, how, what the research should be. Look at the poorer section and see how it, it could affect them. Now, uh, here, it, I was trying to bring in all the NDP implications because one, as I said, a lot of the youth were out of the villages due to the industrial boom. But that was not sustainable, so they had to come back. The other project, which was very important at that time, was the Pergau Dam. That was during Mahathir's administration. They were building this huge hydroelectric power in nineteen nineties with British aid, and Pergau Dam was situated very close to Ajali and it was all part of that industrialization, bringing in energy, building the infrastructure. Now. The people in the village I studied were very kind of nostalgic during that period because that was the only period where they had real jobs. And after the dam was completed, they were left with nothing. So, you see, even though it was a rural area, but it was completely touched by everything that was happening mm-hmm. outside as well as globally. Not forgetting, of course, the new economic policy, which we may not see it as a direct effect. But all the implications are there. And, and you know, if you go to Kelantan, I mean, I don't know, but you, you might have gone, huh, right? In some of the villages, you will not see any non-Malay. So I was there, like, for a few months, you know. You won't see any non-Malay. So mm-hmm. you never imagine, you know, that, okay, this is Malaysia. Right. Oh, I mean, it's another Malaysia. And so, oh, I mean, NEP was not a non-issue, of course, because, you know, you don't see so-called the others, right? But still... The poverty side, okay, was very. Uh, it's kind of a forgotten issue, I suppose. But when yeah. I, I did my research in the late two thousand, people thought it was strange that you're doing research on poverty, because wow, well, we have solved poverty. All we didn't, we have not resolved, is this ethnic inequality. That right, was what people right. were really hung up on. You know.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that when we think of the NEP and we think of its successes, uh, we imagine places like Bangi or Sha'Alam, right? Mm-hmm middle class, upper middle class, uh, significantly affluent Malay populations, professional classes, but we don't think of the Jalis of the country. right? right? So I think this is where your research helps and that it's really an in-depth look into that mm. quote-unquote microcosm and the lessons and mm. questions it raises. Now, I'm curious about the knowledge producing side of things in that this is fieldwork based. So tell us a little bit about your experience. How did you earn their trust, quote-unquote, right? Because granted you appear Malay, but you might not have the way of speaking necessarily or the way of being that would kind of be easy for you to adjust to that context. So what was that journey like? Oh, do we, Were you immediately marked out as somebody <laughs> from uh, Penang?
1: Yeah, Well, yeah, of course, you have to be very honest when you do fieldwork. You have to actually position yourself, right? There's no point of hiding your identity. So it's kind of building trust. You know, you kind of have to have a negotiation with the villagers and say, I'm here. And of course, I'm trying to get as much from you but you're also entitled, okay, to get as much from me. That also includes like knowing about my background. Well, they were not really isolated as I mm-hmm. told earlier, right? Uh, people have got extensive, no urban experiences themselves. So only a few older, among the older ones, were, had not really had an urban experience. And oh, now of course, those two researchers, they were actually University of Malaya graduates. They lived there. Uh, their husband and wife. So they sort of ease us into the process of getting into the village. I think people were really like, they were really very open. If you actually want to do a program, a documentary or a film, and the people were very really open because I think it's just so desperate, you know, life there, that they just want people to know what the situation is there. And very few people actually go there to find out, you know, sincerely you know, what is happening with their life. So I think, Every time I do field work, actually, uh, you always tend to get more out of people than people out of you. Mm -hmm. So that's the unfortunate side because you're always in a position of power, right? Rather than them who's powerless. And, And you try as much as possible to give back But, you know, there's only so much that uh, you could do. Mm.
2: So Uh, what were you seeking uh from them? Was it their sense of why they were in the positions they were and how they viewed the future perhaps or, you know, how they might change their own circumstances? Was it really kind of driven by an insider view of the problem of poverty?
1: Mm. You know, I think it's really about the politics and it's about the management of the state, really. Because, I mean, at that time it was ruled by pass and... uh, Nick Aziz was the chief minister. Of course, he was popular. But, you know, the village itself was also split. One side was with Amno and the other side was with PAS. This is a typical issue, is it? Malay, Malay villages. The ones who were supportive of PAS, they actually got... Uh, this This is very... I think this sort of development people don't know. What PAS government did at that time, because they don't have industrialization programme. So what they did was to clear this whole hill when we were there, you know, it was just barren. And they were there to replant you know, with um, oil palms. So what they did was they gave out shares to the past supporters. And so once the oil palm plantation is up and running, so the ones who are supportive of us will get the dividends from that enterprise. And they were quite... We're you not know, embarrassed to tell us that, too, some of the past supporters, they say, Yeah, I'm just sitting pretty, but I'm just collecting the dividends. And the other side who's supporting AMNO, of course, would not have that benefit, right? But the other, oh, I think this is where the ecological damage comes into the picture. Aside from just massive clearing of primary forests okay, for oil pump, the other activity was logging that the state government was dependent on. And people, if you, I mean, you might not know this. You know, for the lorries to go through the forest, they have to use part of their land, right, for mm. the trail. And so people were just collecting money, see, allowing the lorries to go through um, some of their... Like an their
0: informal land. toll system.
1: Exactly, yeah, I right. was going to say that toll system. <laughs> yeah, but they did, so they made money from...
2: That's from kind of so ancient, it. isn't it? It's ancient <laughs> except you might have used rivers in the past. You know, right. use your toll used,
1: used, uh, roads uh, or their own uh, kampung land you know, to get through. Yeah. So there was... Massive deforestation, there was uh, wildlife you know being affected. This is not even talking about the human side of the yeah. uh, condition
0: I gather that mm. sense of dislocation from their own mm. home right what's supposedly uh, their own home that pervades through your description what 's going on there, and that mm. the significant demoralization right because they 've seen the heyday where the dam had offered them jobs they 've done what they 're supposed to do, which is go to the cities and find work. And what happens after that? There's appears to be no future or no sense of, you know, that a better world is worth imagining, right? That's what I gather.
1: I think Well, when I was doing my research at that time, that was what it was all about. And um, the youth didn't really have any vision okay, for their future. They were not getting married. That was the other issue. <laughs> we did a survey and a lot of young men were not planning to get married cause, simply because they didn't have a job, mm-hmm. right? And the future was bleak even on that score, Usually, you know, Malays will marry early, but in that village, I think it sounds quite marriage. shocking that people
2: yeah, yeah. felt the pressure, the economic pressure, not to get married mm. because, I mean, a single male mm. might feel that he's not somehow fulfilled or, you know, and and what about the women? Yeah. Were they not also getting married? Well, or?
1: surprisingly, the young women were doing better off than the young males. And we had a lot of young graduates, female graduates in the village, and they were more successful, of course, you yeah? know than the males. I think you know generally that there are more females in Malaysian universities than there are males. So this is like yet you know another yeah. indication you know, yeah. at that village level.
0: And let's take a look at more details on that point in the second part of the show where uh, Professor Maznah Muhammad is sharing her insights and conclusions from a really fascinating work she did on jelly as a microcosm of the marginalization caused by the new economic policy. But let's take a pause and we'll be right back. I'm Ahmad Fat Rahmat alongside Sharad This is Night School on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to Night School. I'm Ahmad Far alongside Syarat joined this week by Associate Professor Mazna Muhammad from the NUS. She teaches and researches in the Department of Malay Studies and Southeast Asian Studies. And we are discussing her fieldwork from Jeli conducted over 10 years ago, but still relevant because it looks into the margins of Malay development, the oversights and gaps in policy from the new economic policy, which is supposed to, as the narrative goes, have enriched And I think they have to a significant extent, but there are also forgotten narratives. And some of the work that you've shared with us today explores that forgotten narrative. Now, on the first part of the show, we ended on the question of how gender was politicized as a result. And you talked about how women, because they uh, came back more educated, and this is reflecting the broader trends of Students in IPTA where women are are graduating more that are higher and uh, more significant rates than male graduates. They have social advantage returning to this climate. Tell us a bit more about that.
1: The young women there, yes, in our survey, we found that there were a lot more female graduates than uh, male graduates. A lot more males kind of dropped out of school after secondary level. These are the males who really didn't have a stable employment. Oh, the young uh, women were more confident, uh, in a way because they um and it's very interesting as I said earlier again, you see you can't typify this place as a village or a rural kampong because they would bring back, you know, values from the urban areas. Some of the women, you know, were educated in UITM, largely, you know, in KL. So they came back and so they were very familiar with all these uh, narratives about sexuality, about sexual relations, very confident about whether they want to get married, when they want to get married, and so on and so forth. And they knew that they were not going to get married to any of the village men. Yeah. So that was uh, one thing.
0: And owing to the kinship dynamics, women have always had an advantage in the domestic sphere anyway. So they came back to that already established, right? So in that mm-hmm. sense, they had more, I guess, quote-unquote, cultural security and say men who are supposed to be agents of modernity who are supposed to be part of the rapid industrialization, urbanisation they're left out of that and they come back without an identity essentially
1: yeah I think you're right because you know, to get married you've got to have a sustainable income like, even in the village because they don't know how to farm anymore mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so a lot of them would have their family would have land but they really didn't know how to go and take a chanko or something to plough the land which was very sad because here of course, again, you know, from a biased perspective, you see all oh, this land, vast tract of land, unused. They could start like organic farming or something of that sort, because actually Jelly is quite connected due to the East West Highway. You can bring your produce to Penang or even to K L kind of thing. But no one was actually helping them, you see, with this, least of all the politicians. And I think you know, the sort of politicians that prevail or still existing in Kelantan today, they don't have this kind of developmentalist vision. Or ideal. So people were just left to their own devices. They claimed that they had a factory set up there, a Japanese factory which was making chopsticks, you know, because there's a Mm. lot of bamboo there. I mean, of course, maybe because there was a bit of pressure from the environmentalists. That's why the factory closed down. But they said at least they could go there and earn a a wage, you know, a small factory. But it Uh, wasn't.
2: Was there a lot of resentment from the men? I mean, the men find themselves Mm. in those situations. What do they think of themselves? What do they think of the world around? And how does it shape their behavior? We already have that Mm. one thing that you mentioned earlier, that they're not getting married. But beyond that, what happens with them?
1: Yeah, and sadly, you know, there were a few cases of young males who died early. Of course, people didn't tell us why, but I kind of have a very strong suspicion that it could be due to drug addiction. So they left behind young wives, young children. So, you know, the whole family just have to help each other out. There were at least two or three two cases. Um, and just to clarify, yeah.
0: th- the drug in question is mm-hmm. heroin or... Or?
1: I'm not sure oh, okay. because you know people don't actually want to talk to you sure, openly sure. about it. But you know, you sort of hear on the grapevine, and and you kind of put two and two together. And right, the users well, yeah. overwhelmingly are men. Of course, oh, yeah. Okay. Yes, yes, definitely. You know, I mean, they so they will blame it on like, oh yeah, now we have SMS and um, phones because it's easy to transact over the you know telephone now. Of course, the border is just right there. And I think it's a vicious kind of cycle where you don't have jobs and what you do, you can't get married. You don't have any idea what your future is all about. So this sense of alienation also gets them it, into taking things that can kind of make them forget. Yeah. Do you
0: have a sense of why that alienation translates to hopelessness rather than anger? Why, question, why aren't yeah. they, you know, mm. more enraged?
1: No sense of rage. No sense of rage. That is uh, very clear. People were quite resigned to their fate. Maybe it's a whole idea that, you see, this is takdir. They don't say it that way, but you're right. There's no sense of rage. There's no sense that, oh, we have to do something about it. There's a lot of sense of dependence, though, that somebody else should be doing things for us, but they're not. Yeah, that gets repeated quite often. Because you see like signboards, eh? If you go to a village you see all these signboards before a project can be started, they put this fancy signboard to say this land will be cleared for this is such and such a project. And then you ask them, How long has the signboard been there? Oh it's been there for three years, they kept saying, you know. Yeah. So, you know, this sense of resignation builds up. Yeah.
2: So where do you take your research then? Having kind of mapped the field in terms of the village and its actors, mm-hmm. what next?
1: Well, this, of course, it was done as an academic research, but we did present the findings when the editors of the book were putting together, right, this whole collection. So, we had several seminars. Well, we invited policymakers and so on and so forth. And it was also funded by the Ford Foundation of Jakarta. So, that kind of fed into their, probably their overall policy framework because Ford Foundation funds uh, research projects and I suppose they also try to influence policies. Not directly with the Malaysian government because one economist that was around when I presented this said that, oh, actually your data is so localised, it's not really generalised, it cannot be generalised because our data shows that, yeah, you know, poverty has been eradicated to quite a large extent in Malaysia. So it could be just a very localised condition. Yeah. So that's the sort of reaction you get from policymakers. Right?
0: A lot of it depends on how we locate that question of poverty too, right? Because on one hand there is a I guess scarce access to certain necessary goods, but if we locate it in the question of inequality, for example, right, that could explain why it is that people are resigned, right? In the sense mm-hmm. that first of all, the political structure is so imbalanced. You don't have local elections, right? Mm-hmm. All your officials are elected anyway, the system is so centralized, then the question is, at that level, why even have a voice, right? Because the process of gaining that authority back to your community is so, like, enormous, right? Mm-hmm. So it's easier to feel like, resign, like, oh, there's so much that I have to do. Whereas if you can elect your community councillor, a mayor, for example, right, then your voice would be more valued, right? But if not, if the system is so centralised, then what can you do, right?
1: Yeah, you know, talking about politics actually—that's the other thing that you have to know how people at that level think about politics. It's all about what you can get tangibly. For example, so I said earlier that the village was also split. You know, one side was Pas, the other side was Amno. Now, even the Amno guys knew that there were problems in the village, but they had small jobs coming from the political party. For example, this one guy's job was just to deliver memos or notices from the party. It's like a local postman. So he gets wages from that, right? Another guy gets a contract for very, very small contract for building a drain okay, around the community hall and so on and so forth. So I mean how not to support, okay? Right, because right. you're actually you're actually voting for your employer. Right. More right. than a political <laughs> party. And then on the other side, you have the PAS guys who get what they call the dividends okay, from the land clearing. So, there's a small kind of economy there, uh, that keeps people doing the same thing you know, over and over again.
2: So, why mm. not? I mean, think of the logic of this, right? So, if since pass is the governor of the state and it's giving out things like dividends for mm. palm oil estates, why not for everybody to graduate, you know, or to move over to pass I mean, wouldn't that be the most economically rational and politically rational thing to do, go with the winner?
1: No, not necessarily because the whole process is so decentralised. For example, infrastructure is not necessarily a state purview. So it comes from the federal government. So when you have to build drain around the community centre, that comes from federal funds.
0: I see, yeah.
2: I see. But are they dividing it? Like, do households get together around the dinner table and say, okay, now you support PASS to get the dividends, <laughs> and then, you know, mum and uncle so and so, Apache, whatever, is going to take the federal funding? I mean, is it thought out in a strategic way? I mean, do they think of government in strategic terms, or is it just happenstance and maybe some, I mean, the charisma of, say, the late Nick Aziz would have played a part mm-hmm. in people's party loyalties versus, I don't know, people yeah. who. Why would you support UMNO? I'm not quite yeah. sure why you would support UMNO in Clanton, but okay, some people might have other reasons to do that. I mean, what's going into the mix in terms of party loyalties? A
1: bit of both, I think, what you said. They could get together over the kanduri, and they come from different political stripes, you can even call them political stripes, right? Um, on the other hand, they could be very pragmatic okay, about what they can get out of whoever comes to give them anything. So, as I say, you know, because life is so uh, meager, you have mm-hmm. to really kind of try to squeeze out of everything around you. So, I mean, that's also the definition of poverty, I suppose, because you just try to be rational yeah, about yeah. what you can get or of anything. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I've heard oh. actually, you know, from other people, mm. how people play off political parties. I mean, individuals who might actually have several party affiliations and hope nobody knows and they're kind of <laughs> playing to one side or the other depending yeah. on what it is that they're trying to get from them and contracts being central to that.
1: Yeah. But I must say that AMNO in this village is very organised and not just in terms of responsibility, sources, but even ideologically, because you know the role of the guy who was the local postman was really to circulate all these missives and new updates from unknown. So I think at that time there was a case of Anno Ibrahim something, I think he was going to a trial. So they will get this memo every week, and it's like information dissemination, but it's also kind of an ideological uh, well, making sure that people stay within the line. And they do, they do repeat what is said, is it, in all those missives and memos and whatever? So I thought it was very effective of AMNU to do that and to actually appoint, you know, a local postman. Yeah, By now, I think they would probably be using the SMSs, you know, but that's <laughs> time, like, On the know.
0: WhatsApp. WhatsApp like, yeah. yeah, the information yeah, and WhatsApp. communications, <laughs> <laughs> is it, all about <laughs> right, the level. local
1: yeah, yeah, they have their own
0: network and political logic too. Uh, yeah. You know, we are in the urban liberal sphere and we would sometimes talk about the rural Malay world in very simplistic terms, like what are some of the misconceptions you think that the urban liberal discourse has, right, towards this quote-unquote safe deposit, right, because that's how right. we think of them, right, oh, we can't move forward because of right. the r- rural Malays are still beholden, right, so uh, I mean, and you encounter this a lot but you also have the facts, right, so how would you correct some of the misconceptions that urban liberals have?
1: Well, what I said earlier is that people actually are not ignorant at all rural folks are not ignorant. First of all, they're not really rural. <laughs> so right, you know, right. They're at the margins. You can say that they're peri-urban. Secondly, is because life is uh, rather... Um, I mean, you have to think in short-term basis. Okay, So they're very practical about everything. Yeah, Even the guy that I, the local postman, he knows everything about politics. <laughs> I mean, you can talk about him, about who's who and whatnot. But yet, he says, I'm doing my job and I'm not going to stray from this because simply because this is my period Nasi, you know, as I say. Yeah. And why should I give this up? So you have a lot of this happening in the villages and they're actually very politicized. Very politicized because they have quite a lot of time. You know, together in you know. a <laughs> could I copy the men, what else would they do, right? Yeah. Just yeah. gather around. We don't have time even to do that, right? We do that all the time. Well
2: better politics yeah. than heroin I guess. Yeah, <laughs> no. yes,
1: you're right. You're right. Actually the older men actually have some passion or obsession. Politics, right? These are younger men, I think, the youth, the young males, I think, those are the ones that are a bit astray see, in the village. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's very sad. Yeah. I wonder mm-hmm. if,
2: you know, just going, since we're running out of time, I'm guessing, to the work of the Malay Studies Department, is it doing things that are different from how we approach in Malaysia and the universities mm-hmm. here approach the question of Malay society? Malay Studies mm-hmm. Department and US have a, a different research agenda?
1: Ah, uh, yeah, I think so. Because we don't kind of, first of all, the academic part of it is taken very seriously, right? Objectivity, and you're not sort of beholden to any uh, political agenda. That is important for academic freedom and space. The other approach is, of course, we're looking at the Malay world, not just, like, I think Malay studies here probably is quite focused just on Malaysia. Malay Studies in Singapore was the original Malay Studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It was actually formed in the University of Singapore at that time. And it was only when Malaysia split or Singapore split from Malaysia that the two departments became separate. So I think the tradition is uh, wider in a way because it's looking at the Malay world. So that would include Brunei, that would include Sumatra, Riau, even Southern Thailand. And Singapore and Malaysia. And I think what's very important, I think, Malay studies in NUS at the moment is the whole recognition of the fluidity of Malayness. I think it takes a long time for people to actually accept that idea. Mm -hmm. That there's really no one definition of what or who is a Malay is. And anyway, I mean in Malaysia I think they're quite obsessed with trying to look at the origin of the Malay. Right? But this is to give them the idea that Malayness is really like all over the place. It's very fluid and it moved is it, from you know, to Malacca and then Malacca to Riau and so on. And now it's back to KL and now Putrajaya. Just giving that sense, I think, of the fluidity of Malayness. I think that's what I feel that my department now in NUS have been trying to do.
0: There's a modern manifestation of that fluidity in your mm-hmm. essay, in that a lot of the people you interviewed worked in Singapore, they worked in Johor, they worked in KL, and then they come back, and their identity is being negotiated in those flows, mm-hmm. right?
1: Correct. Yes.
0: All right. Okay. Wonderful. I, I, this is really fascinating mm-hmm. because I think um, I think a lot of blind spots are still dominating the way we think about the broader Malay context, right? And uh, we're still, at least we, by by we, I mean BFM, and I guess our listeners. We still don't quite have enough insights of the world that you've actually explored for this study to form like a fully comprehensive idea of the politics that we can kind of anticipate in the coming years. So before we wrap up, we have space for recommendations, maybe other articles, books comes to mind when it comes to this topic.
2: Oh well, let's begin with me then. Uh, you know, actually, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe that the Malay Studies Department was set up by Sultan Takde Ali Shabana, the Indonesian scholar, and one of the essays—it's a book actually that he has—and it's—it's got a, f- a fascinating title. In, in response to what you said just now, Mazna, mm-hmm. about you know having a view that's either kind of centered around the nation-state or one that's broader, and he has a book called "The Problems of Malaysia in the Context of Southeast Asia," and it's. it's it's a fascinating title because it says what it is which is really working through even national-based problems but in a kind of regional framework.
0: Yeah. I have in mind Unsettling Absences Urbanism in Rural Malaysia by Eric Thompson Mm -hmm. which looks into this dynamic of like identity flows when it comes to urbanization and I guess rural identity and I think a key point that you made Maznah earlier is that it's not really rural there's infrastructure but there's a different sense of space and identity that's taking place. And I think this book is a good resource for people who want to explore that further. So, uh, yeah. How about you?
1: Books to... Oh, books, articles, or Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you caught me off guard. You, know I mean? you could recommend
0: your own recommend, your own recommend your own, yeah. I mean, that's a really good essay from... And uh, just, just to clarify to our listeners, no. that essay yeah. is from an anthology edited by Edmund Terence Gomez and your husband, Johan Saravanamutu, called The New Economic Policy in Malaysia. Right? Published by SIRD and the NUS Press. And the article is called The New Economic Policy and Poverty at the Margins Family Dislocation, Dispossession, and Dystopia in Kelantan.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, I I don't know. I Well, I'm not recommending books, but I since I've got the airspace now, <laughs> I would uh, recommend more researchers to do micro-studies in different locations, not just in Kelantan, maybe in Kedah, in Johor. And then if you have more of these micro-studies, then we can build a wider and larger picture okay, of poverty at the margins, as you call I think yeah, I think that that there's a very unexplored kind of area in uh, Malaysian policy making because you know policy is like it's either for this group or that group, mm-hmm. okay, what about groups who are in between? I think that is the thing conceptually, we have to be clear about that first, and i 'm glad that you know you got me here because you are exploring all this concept of margins and dystopias and even the concept of peri urban. Is something new. And mm. I think that's what policymakers have to be in step with, right? Catch on with a concept. And then you build programs yeah, around concepts that are new or new ways of seeing things.
0: Yep. All yeah. right, before we wrap up, are you on social media, is there where our listeners can maybe look up your tweets or look you on Facebook? Nothing like that. <laughs> You're too Sorry. busy doing real work. <laughs> Real discourse
1: no, I, I think you know once you get on social media there's nothing more to hide but yourself <laughs> so I 'm kind of very fearful of that Sharad <laughs> mm.
2: well i 'm at Sharad Kutun only on Twitter,
0: okay. Which is my you can look us up on Facebook as well. We have a Facebook page, type BFM Night School in the search space. Email the show at bfmnightschool.gmail.com too. If you have any questions for Professor Mazna, we can forward them to her. Or, or download our app at the uh, Apple App Store and Google Play. Thank you again, Professor Mazna Muhammad. As usual, I'm Amat Fat Rahmat alongside Sharat Khetan. And this is Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station.